It's a good win. There's a lot of people. It's like Woodstock, except everybody's got their clothes on. But eat a damn snack. You're like my wife when you get in space. You just get lost. Short steps are better than long steps. That's the only time in your life you're going to hit short is better than long. Hey, it's Wednesday, January 3rd. You're catching this on the 4th. Welcome back to 614 Headsets. We're your host. Everybody go ahead and say hello today. What's up, guys? Good to be back. There we go. Donnie Mac rocking the uh, new hoodie. I love it. Me and Stout had a great day today, too. We got some good news for our viewers. Hey, we do. As we start to talk about that, hey, we're 614 Headsets, guys. Make sure you subscribe. Season 2 is back. It's off and better than season one. It has been a big two, three days for everything we have going on. We've got a big time guest today joining us, Adam Rittenberg, college football ESPN writer. We're excited to hear. I also on SiriusXM, which Domin's going to get into. But as we get started, make sure you subscribe. I, the traffic is really picked up about we love your show. We love what you're doing. New people catching on to us the time. Hey, help us out. Subscribe. Give us a retweet. Give us a comment. All those types of little things just help us keep building what we're trying to do, which is really just network and grow this game that we love. Hey, and Ryan said, we have got some awesome news. Our clinic is going to be on January 27th, and we're pleased to announce that we have got the perfect location after we took your guys' feedback. We're going to be at the Westerville Cohatch, the old armory in downtown DeVille to have all you guys there. It's the perfect setting that's going to fit the needs that you guys expressed you wanted. We're going to have a great social across the street at North High Brewing afterwards. I promise you the speaker lineup is coming together great. And by the, this weekend, we're going to have it all mapped out and you're going to get to see what we're doing. I think it's going to be awesome. It's going to rival a lot of stuff going on because this is a clinic by coaches for coaches. All right. And it's uh, free. And it's free. It's free. <laughs> yeah. We're putting on this awesome thing to help us grow, but really this has just been about networking and a passion project of football, what we love and, and what we like to follow. Donovan, go ahead and tell everybody what we're getting into today on episode 25. Yeah, today's going to be a great one. As you alluded to, we've got a great guest on today with Adam. Adam, thank you again for joining us. We got a little State of the Union is how we titled it, a State of Union of what is football in the world that we know it like as it relates to recruiting, as it relates to NIL, transfer portal. Us as three high school coaches are, are seeing faces in different sides of that. And Adam, you as someone who's in the thick of the, the college ball world is obviously seeing a lot of that. So we've got a great few topics to talk about. We've got our pick six for Adam here with six more geared towards college football questions that we're going to ask him. He's got no idea what they are. And then we're going to get into it. Hey, as we get started, can't forget to mention, hey, 614 Headsets is presented by Fundraising University. Fundraising University Ohio offers a variety of fundraising efforts that helps football teams earn profitable, effective, and fast-paced fundraisers designed to raise the most money in the shortest amount of time to reach their fundraising goals. Fundraising University Ohio is locally owned, operated, and with their six-step blitz system will help your team maximize profits. As a current coach himself, Brent Maxwell of the Fundraising University will sit down and help you pick, plan, strategize, and execute your fundraiser. If you're interested in us running a fundraiser for you, please contact Brent Maxwell at bmaxwell at fundraisingtheletteru.net or 740-501-8946. So I know a lot of you coaches are, are mapping out your next year. Now's the perfect time. He's gearing back up after the holidays, and he can't wait to show you 
how he can make your life stress-free and bring you the most amount of money you've ever had. Ryan? I'm excited uh, to get rolling with uh, Brent again. That's how I've got my three sets of new jerseys. The uh, Vikings always look fresh when we're uh, coming out of the tunnel. <laughs> they do look good. The all blacks, I like them. So let's get into it. Diamond, go ahead and introduce the guest of honor today, and let's get this going. Yeah, so Adam, again, we appreciate you coming on. Adam's a graduate of Northwestern University, adjunct professor at DePaul, so you're doing a lot of things on in your own world of, of football and, and academics and like that. Um, you're a host on College Sports on SiriusXM Radio, and then, of course, you're senior writer for college football at ESPN. So talk to us, how did your journey unfold? What got you to the point where you're at now? And, and for folks that may not be familiar with your work, I've been reading a lot of your stuff for a long time. Guys, Adam is one of the premier writers when it comes to college football, and it's been a pleasure reading and listening to your content. So tell us, how did you get to this point over your career up to 2024 now? Sure. Great to be with you guys, and thanks for that introduction. I had an interest in, in college sports when I moved out to California. I introduced to it around 10, 11 years old and really developed the passion and the, kind of continued throughout my time. In, in college and did a lot through student media and actually started writing for ESPN when I was still in college and I did an internship there. And it, it just, I loved college football. I loved the, the stories and the pageantry and, and some of the things that were different about it than pro sports. So even though I covered some pro sports in my first job and in, in other ways, I was always drawn towards college football. So fortunate enough in 2008 to be uh, brought on uh, at ESPN and did a lot of work around the Big Ten for five or six years, and then moved into a, a national role where I've been ever since. So been really fortunate that I've been there for now more than almost is going to be 16 years coming up uh, here next month. And so it's it's been a really enjoyable journey, and certainly the sport has changed a lot, but there's still a lot of great elements, and, and obviously being able to to go to the campuses and the games and see all the, the, the iconic coaches and players over the years. It, it's changed a lot in terms of what we do in terms of the content we produce. There wasn't podcasts when I started. There wasn't a lot of social media back then. So you've had to adapt. And But it's still a sport that I love uh, being around and certainly hope to continue doing it for a long time. Yeah, as you alluded to, the world of football and college ball has changed quite a bit, which we're going to get into. But I think we do have to get into our pick six segment with you, Adam. So without further ado, Coach Stout, you want to start us yeah. off with your first question? Round, I'd round, love round, to. Round, I want to ask, a, I just want to ask a quick bonus question before we get started. Before we get into the meat potatoes, I think about our journey. Like this is season two for us. We're young guns in this game. Obviously, journalism is our main thing, but we do it. You know what I mean? Like Adams, what is one bit of advice you could give us three a bit of advice as we're starting out in this game. What, how, what could you tell somebody being a, a professor in, in journalism and academics and things and, and being in the space for so long and having success? Like when you look back as your young self, what would be maybe something you told yourself or something you could tell us? Yeah, I think it's just very relationship based. And it, it's one of those things where you can't be friends with the people you cover, but you have to have an element of trust and you have to have relationships that, you know, if you need, to confirm information or get information or chase information that people are going to call you back. And it doesn't mean you have to always write good things. And if, if you're going to write something negative, it's important to be fair. But I, I think, it, again, like you guys coaching, it's very much networking and relationships and working those and trying to grow your network, always trying to grow your network. So I think when I started, I was you know, a little bit too by the book and didn't look at the interactions with the people that I covered as anything beyond transactional. And it has to go deeper than that. You have to establish trust and a rapport 
with with a lot of folks if you're going to do your job correctly. So like my goal now is whenever a story breaks, even if I didn't get the story first, I can go and, and, and make sure that it's true. And certainly the accuracy component is is most important. If you are inaccurate, if you are um, hasty with the things you say, especially in the information world, um, you're going to lose credibility. So I always tell students the you, the, the assumption is that you're not credible. You have to earn credibility and then you have to maintain credibility. And that's hard to do over time. But I think the people that are most successful are able to do that. That's all. That's a great awesome. nugget. I love that. I appreciate that. All right. Hey, you talked about pageantry. This gets me right into one of the questions I want to ask you. Covering for this long, and like you said, on a national stage, in your opinion, what do you think is the best college game day football town from the atmosphere to the game mm-hmm. to the food? Who's got the total package that you say is the best place to go to? Yeah, it's interesting. I haven't been everywhere, so it's I, I can try to give you one in, in, in every region. Yeah, I've obviously done a lot in the Big Ten, so I've been to every Big Ten venue and covered at least one game there, and, and they're, all, they're all good in their own ways. I really enjoy going to Madison. I think when that place mm-hmm. is, when they're rolling, that, that's a really fun game day environment. Penn State is a really hard place to get to, but a great place to be for games. I haven't been to as many SEC stadiums, but LSU is one that I think all college football fans should try to get to at least once. It's just a very special environment with the tailgating and the night football. And then out West, I had a chance to go to a couple of Colorado games this year with Deion Sanders being there. And it's a pretty cool new environment. Um, but I think Washington's and Oregon, mm. both tremendous places to see games. And then obviously in the Southeast, Georgia's great. have not seen a whole lot of football in the state of Florida, but I'm hopeful that I can get down there at some point. And then Clemson's a really neat place to see a game. So there's really a lot of them around the country. It's hard to single out just one. (laughs) That's awesome. All right. I'll give you one of mine. And I switched this around a little bit because we have some similar questions ish. If you could have dinner with one current or former college ball player, who would you choose? I know there's a lot of legends out there in today's game in the past based off of where you grew up, who you rooted for. It may depend on your answer may depend, but yeah, gosh, yeah, it would probably be a former player, but who would it be? That's a good one. I'm trying to think. I feel like I have a better reference on coaches, but player-wise, trying to think of like the players that that really drew me into the sport. That would be somebody probably in the in the mid to late '90s. But I'm trying to think, who would be a good one? You'd probably be somebody that's had national prominence, won a Heisman Trophy. You certainly Barry Sanders would be cool because Barry Sanders yeah. obviously won yeah. was a, was an incredible college player, but also an amazing uh, professional and somebody that I I grew up watching more at the professional level. He'd be certainly somebody to to hang out with. And you know, there's been a lot of colorful coaches along the way that uh, would be you know, Barry Alvarez is someone who I covered early yeah. in my career and. He's pretty enjoyable to be around. So I'm off to think about that. But yeah, Barry Sanders would probably be pretty high on my list. That's awesome. Speaking of Barry Sanders, have you guys watched the Bye Bye Barry on Amazon Prime yet? The documentary on there? Mm -mm. It's really good. I really liked it. it. It was a really cool way of just showing him and why he left the game. And I know you two are younger than me, so you got no idea. Uh, it was a really well done documentary. So if you're a football fan, or you like Barry Sanders or anything, I, I got to recommend the Bye Bye Barry on Amazon Prime. It's a fantastic documentary. Now I would say <clears throat> Barry's a dog, but 
Gail Sayers is always going to be the best because my last name Sayers too. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with that. A little Brian song for you if you want to talk about me being young. But here's the thing. So my next question is going to be, of all the places that you have been to and covered, what was the number one toughest place for an opposing team to come into and play, like atmosphere-wide? <clears throat> Yeah, I, I want to always make make sure to mention the ones that people maybe don't know. Obviously, Ohio State's a tough place to play. Penn State's a tough place to play. Um, LSU, I mean, I, I went down there when it was a Joe Burrow year when he won the Heisman. No one was beating that team. I can see when A&M has it going, that would be a really tough place to play. But there's a reason why Iowa knocks off mm-hmm. a lot of really good teams at home. And for those who haven't been to Kinnick Stadium, just the way that it's configured with almost no space between the stands and the sideline, it's a very intimidating place. You're going to hear the fans. They're going to be out on your butt all game. And I think it, it plays a role in why Iowa has had success against some more talented teams over the years and why they've had maybe more wins over the top 10 than, than they should. So, yeah, I always want to mention a place like Kinnick Stadium because I, I think it can be a very difficult place to play. And historically, it's shown itself to be. Iowa, I got pink to play there in 2019. Room. Yeah, pink locker pink rooms, lockers. close to the pink. fans. Waving to the kids was awesome. And, and that year we got to play at Iowa. year before we got to play at Army. We got to play at Ohio State. And I'll tell you what, Kinnick Stadium was probably the loudest of all the places that we got to go. Go ahead and tell everybody how much you lost to the Iowa that game. Mm, Iowa, we lost like 31 to 17. Okay, like okay. Was it like last time 13. you shared a personal story? That's good. No, the Ohio State one was a little aggressive. Look at that. Season yeah. two, things are better, man. <laughs> I love it. All right, here's my second question, Adam. You go to a stadium, you go watch a game, either you're covering it or you're just going to watch it for fun. What's your go-to stadium snack that you got to get while you're there? Yeah, it depends if, if there's sort of time to walk around and, 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 and buy from the from the vendors. Usually I just eat what's in the press box, which is a great, by the way, Colorado needs to step up their game because uh, I, I've learned covering some games where you almost have to bring your food with you. Um, they, they don't have a whole I lot for us. Uh, but, um, I thought yeah, Prime I would mean, have some steaks. Yeah. yeah, probably for the VIPs, but not so much for the for the writers. <laughs> I, I don't know if I have a go-to. If there's something that the area is known for, I think I'll try to go for that. But our game days are usually so busy because we're we're focusing on games that we're at, but also other games. And so it's almost more important for me to find either a place before or after the game where I can monitor everything else that's going on on Saturday. So, for instance, if I have a night game, it's almost like finding the bar or the restaurant that has the most other games on for that first window so that you can watch as much as you can before you have to head over to the stadium and then making sure that you're keeping tabs on everything else that's going on around the sport. So you know, Saturdays are great. I love being at games, <clears throat> but it is more hectic because you're obviously in one place, but you're trying to keep track of what's going on at a lot of other spots. Yeah. I said, I would think you just focused on that. I, I never, I couldn't only imagine juggling all those games and doing stuff. Yeah. Right? I didn't think about that. All right, it's 2024. It's the year. It's the time where everybody's coming up with their resolutions and things they want to get better at. And so I, I flipped it up and I just said, what's one thing you're hoping to accomplish personally or professionally this year in 2024? That's really, yeah, it's a good question. There's a couple of projects that I'm, I can't really disclose yet, but are, are getting close that are outside of my normal duties at ESPN. One in particular, which was based on a story that, that I did a couple of years ago. And I'm Really hoping that that project comes to fruition. 
because it would as much as I enjoy my job, I think there's some bigger picture things that I like to do outside of outside of the work uh, itself. And then again, obviously meeting more people, they're telling some different stories is always a goal, but there's some bigger picture things that there's one that's a podcast project in particular that I'm hoping actually happens. It's been a, a long road, but hopefully we're getting a little closer. I love it. Hey, you heard it here first. Adam's got a 30 for 30. And it is college football related. All right. There is a college football. I said it first. Adam's got a 30 for 30. We can't wait, Adam. We can't wait. Good for you. I wish. Yeah, he should should have one. My next one's going to be, Donnie kind of said, go to dinner or, or whatever. But for me, I would say right now in the current game, not previously, who's a head football coach that that you would love to maybe go to dinner with or, or hang out with outside of interviewing them on the personal round. Yeah. I'm trying to think of guys who maybe I don't know as well, who'd have a, a lot of interesting stories. Cause I, I know a lot of coaches I've, I, I've been around and covered the coaching industry for, for a while. So most of these guys I have some type of relationship with not everybody, but a lot of them obviously it'd be great to go to dinner with coach Saban who I don't know particularly well, that that would be very interesting. I think a guy like Kyle Whittingham, how long he's been around, how long he's coached, all the different stories and, and, and things I think would be another good one. And then there's obviously some fun ones. I know Brett Bielema well, and going to dinner with Coach B would be fun. I've, I've had drinks with him. I've hung out with him, and he's he's a lot of fun. And there's another, there's a couple other guys in that category, but I'd probably try to find somebody who I don't know quite as well and and spend a little bit more time with them. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. You guys ready to get in the meat potato of this? I State am. of the I'm Union. Of, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. All right. Let's rock and roll. So, Adam, my first question, and it relates back to what we do. We're three high school football coaches from Columbus, Ohio area. And so we have different interaction. Ryan as a head coach, Coach Stout as a offensive coordinator, and me as a position coach. We have different interactions with college coaches and college recruiters when it comes to our specific players and trying to market them as best we can or, or help get them recruited anyway. We have heard different perspectives from college coaches regarding the transfer portal and how it's affected recruiting on a local level, on a widespread level, on a four-star versus five-star, on a under-the-radar kind of recruits and that kind of typical recruiting process. How much do you think the portal has affected that normal process that we've seen over the years? And, and do you think this is just the tip of the iceberg as we really start to get in this new area of football? Again, I, I think it's a huge factor because you're dealing with, in many cases, proven players uh, versus players who you're going to have to develop even at a high level. So it just comes down to the coach and that program's philosophy. Also, that program's ability to attract top players and top transfers. One thing that I think is fascinating to see if this starts to shift is whether the elite level high school quarterbacks stop picking the you know, quote elite level programs because they've seen how those programs can access top transfers. So, for example, you look at Oregon. You know, Oregon has two years of Bo Nix. Bo Nix is a record-setting player who transferred in from Auburn. They also added, or they had Dante Moore as a high school recruit, and then they added Austin Novosad, who's another pretty good high school recruit. And obviously, Bo finishes his career. Then they add Dylan Gabriel, who's one of the top quarterbacks in the transfer portal. And yet, Dante Moore also comes transfers to Oregon. But you wonder uh, if you're a high school player, do you look at that and say, "I'm not going there. I'm going to go to you know a power program, maybe one that isn't 
quote blue blood because I don't want to be bumped or whatever transfers that they can get. So I'm curious if that'll change behavior. You know, I, I don't think that the number of transfers is going to go down. It's almost like a reflex for a lot of players. And they look at their careers as I'm going to spend a little time here and then I'm going to go somewhere else. Um, there's a lot of players who, I guess what the thing that surprised me most is players who um, aren't really in danger of, of losing playing time, still going in the portal and trying to find something that may be better or maybe worse. You look at a guy like Dorian Singer from USC. He comes from Arizona to USC as an all pack 12 receiver and didn't have much of an impact this year. And now he's back in the portal. And so uh, you wonder if that type of situation is going to change behavior, but it, 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 I feel for the coaches because <clears throat> it's a lot to manage especially around the same time of the year. And you're you're trying to fill out a roster as best you can. And some with transfers, some with high school recruits. I think it's very hard to be honest um, because things move so quickly. And players that, again, right up until the the end of this first window, which I guess isn't technically over, the guys are still going in the portal who could have gone in weeks ago. Some are coming out of the portal. So it's a very dynamic um, enterprise and personnel has become a, a, a much more of a, a difficult puzzle than it was when I started my career. You mentioned a second ago, you said the blue bloods, right? You, you mentioned what technically would be the blue bloods. Can you elaborate more on the proposed plan from the NCAA for the subdivisions like that? And if that is really going to happen or not, because you, I heard you say blue bloods, right? And that's part of that. Yeah, I, I think it's a plan that is good to, to have on the table as a starting point. Now, it's going to be changed and it's going to be debated, but at least an acknowledgement from the NCAA that there there should be a division uh, where that can fund itself and fund the players at a different level than others. Because right now you have this 131-team FBS that's made up of schools that are <clears throat> really different from the top 30 to the bottom 30. So I think a greater acknowledgement of you know, who can compete financially and resource wise and uh, in the NIL space and in, in the recruiting space. Uh, I, th- I think being more upfront about that is, is going to be beneficial. Now, it doesn't mean that uh, a school that maybe isn't in that top 30 cannot rise up and have a great season because we've seen plenty of examples of it. But, you know, what th- there's just so much money involved in the sport. And, and, and I wonder if it's better off for uh, schools that financially just aren't at that level to have a more clear acknowledgement, which is what the NCAA is trying to do, of saying, hey, this is one tier, this is another tier, and, and finding a way for everybody to compete for something meaningful. That's really important going forward. Do we? How, how likely is it, do we feel that was where things are shifting to, that you're going to see Power 5 and Group 5 split at some point? Is that on the near horizon or a likely thing that could happen? There's certainly a belief in the sport that's going to happen. Because the, the TV money has gotten so big, you've obviously had all these rounds of realignment, and you know, there's a belief that there's going to be a, a tier. Uh, whether it's 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, we'll find out. But uh, a, a group that's separate from the rest um, because of their resources. And um, when that happens, uh, I, I don't know, but I, I really do feel that's probably where the sport is headed. And um, I, I don't think it's necessarily <clears throat> it's going to be different, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to say, okay, these schools – have shown they're just different from the others and that's okay. And there's, I I think it would be really constructive to still have meaningful goals, but right now you have a sport where, you know, essentially only a small group of teams can compete for a championship. 
And even if you uh, zoomed out a little bit, a, a, a relatively small group of other teams, if everything goes right, would be able to compete for a championship. Now you look at Washington you know, this year that's in the national championship game. A lot of things lined up for them, and that's great. But you know, historically, they haven't been one of those programs that's in that championship mix year in and year out. Could they be in that new system? Possibly. They certainly have a great coach, and but you, you need a lot of things to, to line up versus an Alabama, versus a Georgia. Those teams are pretty much always going to be in, in, in the conversation. So I, I just think a greater acknowledgement that not all schools at this level are, are the same is, is a good thing in the long run. It's like you mentioned, you brought up some schools, and I, I just think of this bowl season. Take Liberty, for example. I bought the tee, man. I was ready to watch the Liberty versus Oregon game. Liberty's put up a ton of points. They have, they've had a lot of success in years past, and then you get to that game, and there was just no competitive balance in it at all. Whereas yeah. what you said, if Liberty is maybe split away in their own D1 AA or whatever this might be become, maybe it's a different story. That's one of the questions I had is that group of five perspective is I, I played at Miami University. My last year was it, the COVID year. I got to see the MAC conference just a couple of years ago. And you talk about group of five versus kind of power five or upper echelon splitting away. And there are, like you said, there are different resources. It's okay to acknowledge that. I remember when guys would transfer in seldomly from other power five schools and they'd talk about their stipend they got. And it was severely different than what you might get at a, athletic program in the Mac. And so it, it there is this kind of split, even with, if it's a money thing and, and you get a, a group of five team that inevitably makes a 12 team playoff, like Kyle said, if you have results like Liberty versus Oregon or like other teams that we've had seen in the past group of five, how do these teams survive going forward? If I, on one hand, you could make this nationally recognized level, but it's hard to compete. On the other hand, your best players in a season are transferring, going to bigger time programs because of NIL, because of XYZ. Like, how do these programs survive? Or is it just more, nope, they're destined to split apart naturally, and that's okay? Yeah, I, again, I don't think a split is the worst thing in the world, especially if you construct a postseason for that level that you know, still allows everybody to compete for something. The players are always going to want to move up, for the most part, if you can. And I, I don't think I don't think you can walk it back as far as the player movement. So I think, and I talked to a group of five athletic director about this last week, having a, a clear postseason system for that level, which could incorporate some of the existing bowls, or maybe you do campus sites or whatever, could be great. It's, it works in the FCS. It works in those divisions. Why couldn't it work in the group of five versus the current system where, you know, yeah, sure, you're going to get one playoff participant and they're going to be almost for sure going on the road in that first round of the playoff and getting annihilated. That's that. That's the reality because you brought up Liberty and yeah, they had all their players on the field for the Fiesta Bowl. Oregon had most of theirs too. And you saw what happened and you just think of that in the future, that's going to be at a campus site. And I just don't think the group of five is going to have much chance. And so why not create a system where the best group of five teams can still play for championships and still have a, a good experience in the postseason? And in some cases you could still play, a power five team here or there, but there would be an acknowledgement that those teams are at a different level, especially at the top. Now there's plenty of examples of group of five teams beating power five teams. And, but at the very top, I think it's going to be very difficult, especially given the portal and an NIL for even the really great group of five teams to win a national championship. 
So do you think that this that the playoff system and implementing the playoff system is going to help the bowl season out too as well because of the guys sitting out and not playing? Because that's what we're seeing. I feel like I'm seeing a lot more of that. And, I, and now than ever, guys just sitting out and now bowl games are terrible, like 63 to 3. That was the worst game to ever watch, the Florida State-Georgia game. <laughs> and like you brought up like what I was wanting to say, like how do we fix the product that we just saw, maybe other than the split of the division, like with the transfer portal and the opt-outs and things like, I think this was the first year everybody, or at least common people are saying the product really suffered. It's probably the worst bowl games outside of a couple that we can remember. What's the talk or what's the news about how this improves? Obviously, with a 12-team playoff, the bowls that are part of the New Year's Six will always be playoff games. So you're going to have six bowl games as opposed to two plus a national title game that, that are going to have significance that are going to have, those are teams. Those, those are games that, that there were, were teams are trying to advance and win a national championship. What do you do with the other bowl games? Again, I think you can keep some and maybe incorporate some into some type of F of group of five playoff system. Some are just going to be what they are, which is a, I think more of a spinning forward to the next season. And I think fans have to look at it that way. There's so much of attention on recruiting. And, and who's next? You have to look through, look at these bowls through the same lens. It's the first game of, of the upcoming season. And that may mean looking at a quarterback who's not ready or looking at players in different position groups or, who are just getting their feet wet and, and not putting so much significance on it. So the other option, and we did a story, we did a project on this last year, rethinking the schedule is to move bowl games to the start of the season. Now that's dramatic, but yeah. it would create a time in the schedule going into every season where where you could have bowl environments and there would obviously be incentive for every player to play. This is the first game of the season, so you're not going to have opt-outs. So that's one way to look at it. But then you don't have as many games around the holidays. And even though I agree with what you said about that 63-3 to game or even the Ohio State's bowl game when they were you know shell of themselves against Missouri. Yeah, hold on. Slow down. Let's not bring that one up on this. We're yeah, talking about it's, it. it's, it's, it's a tough that. one. It's a tough one. But again, it, it a it meant a lot to Missouri, and, and it's a big win for them. But also, the, the ratings are really, really good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the ratings are really good. So that's going to be a hard thing to come off of. So I, I just think it's more looking at bowl games in a different context or moving them. But obviously, with the expanded playoff, every Cotton Bowl, every Fiesta Bowl in that system is going to be either a quarterfinal or a semifinal. Do you ever think NIL leaks its way into preserving these bowl games where it comes down to I, – I saw some rumors out there of teams where they had lost two quarterbacks in a transfer portal and they were down a third stringer, down a guy that wasn't really expected to play. And there were rumors maybe that they were using NIL money to keep – certain players there to play the game just to give the team a fighting chance. Do you ever think NIL leaks its way into bowl games to try and prevent some of those opt-outs? Maybe not so much sure. lower tier bowl games. If a big school with a lot of donors is playing a year six bowl and you've got six NFL opt-outs, why not try and get them to stay and play that game? Or the bowls themselves. Again, I think everything has to be on the table. Like I think the idea yeah. that it's going to go back to the way it was is naive. So yeah. how, how, how do you, I think every idea, that idea is a good idea. Thinking about moving bowl games up, incorporating some bowl games into a group of five playoff. Like these things have to be considered. Or just having a bowl game and accepting who's on the field, uh, both coaches and players, and the fact that 
because your game is on during the holidays and it's American football and Americans love football, you will still get a great rating. And I'm not one of these people that, even though I work for a TV company, is all about the ratings. And that's how we, but the ratings are really good. Even with some of these matchups not being very exciting as far as who's on the field, people are still watching these games at an incredible rate. So it's not like the product itself is, is a failure. It just doesn't feel right with so many key players opting out. I think that's a great point. That's actually a phenomenal point. Not <laughs> us not knowing the ratings, but guess what? Guess who's sitting there watching the games? Us critiquing how they look and what they look like. Yeah, the ratings are still good. So that's a great point, though, to bring up because at the end of the day, everything comes down to it's like a business, right? Everything comes down to a business. And that was like going to be one of my questions. The people that are sponsoring or being the name of a bowl game, are they losing money at the end of the day on this? But obviously not if the ratings are up high. No, again, the bowls are good business. It's still a very good business because of when it's situated. And so that's going to be the struggle unless, yeah, I think some bowl games will certainly look into the possibility of of, of how do we create deals with these athletes to get them to play. But in a lot of cases, it's still not going to be worth it because you're still not part of a playoff system. So if you're a high level, if you're Jaden Daniels, I don't think you're ever going to play in the Relia Quest Bowl because no. you're going on the NFL and you won the Heisman Trophy and your team, even if they win that game and you have the game of your life, is not advancing to compete for a championship. That's the end of the line. So I think for some players who are maybe borderline prospects who certainly could use the extra whatever 20k or whatever they're going to get, then maybe they do it. But I think for the high level. NFL players or anyone who's really concerned about, I got to get to the draft and I got to preserve my body at all costs. And there's no championship beyond just winning this bowl game. I don't know if they're going to, if they're going to do that. One of the things I do worry about for kids in the future is maybe NIL money continues to go up, not just for the top end players, but for even the, the average level starter on a big time team, who's got some big backing from schools and donors. And they say at the beginning, Hey, we're going to give you X amount of money, but here's a clause. We're going to make you sign this contract. And this contract says, as long as you are healthy, you will play X amount of games. You will play in all games that your school is in. And, and maybe it ends up not working out with the best for some kids. You never want to speak that into existence, but I think you get what I'm saying. Yeah, again, and that, that's a great point. If it goes to a full employer-employee relationship, which it certainly seems to be tracking, uh, I think there are some real benefits for the schools. Um, even though they say that it would be awful and that's not fitting into the <laughs> academic model and so forth, it, 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 you know, from a recruiting standpoint, I think it could be huge because you as a coach could offer a recruit a one or two or three-year contract and if that recruit signs a three-year contract, then that's a contract. All yeah. of us, I'm on a contract at ESPN. I don't know if you guys are, have ever been contract employees. There's language in there that you have to meet or else you don't get paid. So, yeah. I, I, again, I, I think there's some real benefits to, to a contract relationship from a roster management and knowing who's going to show up. You guys are all coaches. If, if, if you didn't know who was going to show up week to week, that, that makes your job a lot harder. And so, I think to have it in writing that, hey, if this recruit is, it thinks they're going to transfer and they only want to do a one-year contract and I'm good with that and they're good with that, that's fine. But other players, I think, will commit to multi-year contracts and then and then they're signed to those. You can't, you got to serve out your contract before you go into the portal. 
Yeah, there's nothing like being a high school coach, and it's that week where everybody's on vacation. And then next thing you know, oh, we're down five starters today. Yeah, right. Hold they're your, hold your blood pressure, boys. Here we go. Go into a seven-on-seven seven with yeah. two <laughs> starting receivers. Yeah, and that's, starting that's great. I, I had a question just to switch gears. and I had never known that the, the, the plan existed to move the bowl games in the front. That's really interesting. But let's shift gears to another hot topic about Michigan. And I got two questions here. So, one. In your opinion, is this the year Harbaugh jumps ship and goes back to the NFL? I, I think there's a real opportunity, especially if they win a national championship. It would seem to line up, especially with the jobs that are open in the NFL or will be open. The fact that a lot of Michigan's players are going to be moving on. It's going to be a different looking team in 2024. Obviously, the likelihood of more penalties from the NCAA, it feels like the natural point but ultimately he's got to have a team say yes and I think there will be teams at least one team or two that will want Jim Harbaugh as their coach which is different from the last two off seasons when he talked to the Vikings and didn't get that job and we thought he would and then he talked to the Broncos and it was less likely and he didn't he's got to get one of the jobs but I think if you look at the number of, of jobs that either you know are open or will open and you look at the candidates you can't tell let's say there's eight NFL jobs that open, which some people have said is possible, or even six. You can't tell me that there are six coaches that are more qualified for NFL job X, Y, or Z than Jim Harbaugh, especially if he's guided Michigan to a national championship. Had success in the NFL, had success at the college level, is 60 years old, played in the NFL. Like He checks a lot of boxes. While he's a different dude, he's not for everybody, I, I think that an NFL team is going to say yes. And if I had to make a prediction, I think he's in the NFL next year. And I think not signing the contract, it's twofold. You're either trying to get more money and strong arm it, or like you said, like he's leaving. That's I think you brought up the interesting point about the NCAA, like all every, like at the talk about what's gone on with Michigan has gone cold right now. What are some of the potential, like what could the NCAA pass down or what is the talk about that, about what could unfold moving forward? Michigan's received one notice of allegations from the NCAA that happened in December, and they're waiting on a second one um, involving the, the signal stealing. The first one was, was for the um, uh, alleged violations, uh, recruiting violations during COVID. Michigan's uh, imposed some penalties already, including three-game suspension for Harbaugh to begin the this past season, what could still be coming? Most likely more penalties for Harbaugh. I don't know if there'll be uh, program-wide penalties because the violations aren't really that severe. The problem is you have two investigations and you have two sets of issues that are ultimately going to have to be ruled upon by the NCAA. But as you guys know, like the process of the investigations takes a long time. It's drawn out. There's a lot of periods to rebut or respond to allegations. And again, they haven't even received the one involving Connor Stallions. This is a process that could go well into 2024, maybe even into 2025 before there's a ruling. And the penalties, I think, are going to be more focused on the coaches and particularly Jim Harbaugh as the head coach versus the program as a whole. So I know there's some talk about how Michigan's going to vacate all these wins. I, I tend to think that won't happen, but it could. I think the penalties will be more involving the individuals. And again, as, as the head of the program, even if Harbaugh is deemed to have not known about what was going on, you're still responsible according to the NCAA bylaws. So I think more penalties are coming for Harbaugh one way or the, one way or the other if he remains at Michigan. Hmm. Those are not gonna so I have, 
I have one more question that wasn't even with the Ohio State Michigan. I was holding it just laying roll. But for college football, and you've been covering it for such a long time, I think that's so that's awesome. I'm only I'm 28 years old, right? And I've been a head coach for four years, and, and I got the head coaching job at 24. So you were you've been covering it for a, a, a great amount of time. Is the product better now than it was before? when you were covering it 15 years ago? It's a good question. I think there's individual players who are better. I don't know if it is the product better. It's a good question. I, I think the coaching is a really high level. There's obviously a lot more that can go into schematics um, now with the analytic tools that are available, with the um, film that's available, and, 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 and ways that you can – obviously the staff sizes are bigger than they used to be. But again, with all the movement, I think sometimes it's it's harder than ever to deliver a, a great product. So it, I I don't know if the actual quality of play is much much better than it is than it was when I started. Although I think there's been some individual performances that really stand out. I would say in the last five to seven years. Now I was just wondering with the transfer portal and I uh, everything being just so different now. If the product's better now, or if it was better before when it was yeah. loyalty and it was it's, playing, it's different. That. Again, what, what the portal can do. Again, if you work the portal, it, it it can change your program. Washington by 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 adding Michael Penix Jr. along with some others and this coaching staff, and then keeping their existing players, they changed the trajectory of their program. This is a program that was in bad shape at the end of 2021 and is now on the verge of winning a national championship. So people can wring their hands about the portal and say they hate it and whatever. If you work it correctly, it can be um, a transformative element for not just a season, but for where your program is headed. Again, Florida State, I think, did that to a degree under Mike Norvell. I think Michigan's done a really good job of being selective in the transfer portal and, and then other teams have made some mistakes. And like right now, I'm doing a grading of all the transfer quarterbacks or most of the transfer quarterbacks this year. A lot of them didn't work out. But Michael Penix worked out. Bo Nix worked out. Jaden Daniels worked out. And obviously, those teams benefited from that. That's good. I appreciate you coming on, Adam, and, and talking about everything. Just to get your perspective of everything. Being somebody as large as you are in the space just opens up a lot. Like. Last week, we talked to Coach Pratt, who gave us more of a D2 perspective and how the transfer portal's impacting what they're doing. And, and now you're helping us out, see the more of a national landscape. So we appreciate that. And I just want to thank you for just giving us this little bit of time to come on and help us and give us some advice as young guys in the sport. And just thank you for coming today. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I really enjoyed it and certainly wish you guys the best in your careers. And, and it's again, it's a, as I always say, the, the sport has changed, but there's still a lot of great elements about it. So I think the the more that people can adapt to where the sport is headed, the, the better off and more successful you'll be. Absolutely. Yeah. And for, for all of you who are paying attention and still on us at this point, hey, make sure you follow Adam at a ESPN Rittenberg. I was following him the last couple of days, and this guy puts out a ton of information. You're going to stay in the loop if you're with him. Be on the lookout. I think he mentioned a podcast, but I'm calling it here right now. We're <laughs> going to go back to it. Be on the lookout for Adam's 30 for 30. All right, Ryan, go so. ahead and wrap, wrap this bad boy up. Look, thank you guys so much, Adam, especially you, man. Thank you so much. I, I feel like we could sit here and talk for a long, way longer time and be on this podcast all night. 
with all the information that you have and just the insights that you have covering such a long time. And so we just greatly appreciate it. And I know our viewers are going to love this podcast and love this episode that we have. But thank you again. And everybody, make sure you subscribe. Make sure that you subscribe to our podcast. That's how we grow and that's how we build. And don't forget, make sure you contact Brent Maxwell at Fundraising University. If you have any questions on the process, contact me because Brent's been a phenomenal person and a phenomenal ally. And what I've done and being able to help me raise money as a first-time head coach all the way through to this upcoming season now, which will be my fifth year. And make sure everybody, Mark, January 27th, we have the venue. We got great speakers. I'm excited for that. Hey, we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you again for listening.